Hey, welcome to Black People Die by Suicide to our new set. Um, you've probably noticed that we've had some changes with our set over, you know, the past few months and throughout the episodes. But this is our new home, our new setup, the new aesthetic, as the kids <laughs> say. Um, so we just wanted to film this and let you all know that, you know, the set's going to be consistent. We were just kind of playing around to see what we liked and this is what we got. Yeah, I, I know. And for me as a person, as a marketing, communications, branding, you know, that's that's my thing. I was like, Lord, I know what those people probably like. What is black? Is white? Is green? Is green? <laughs> what is grass? What is going on, y'all? But no, we really did like listen to your concerns because there were a few DMs that came in that people asked um, about and just offering feedback on how we can improve the podcast. So just know that we're always open for feedback. So like anything, you can send us a DM or you can um, send an email to info at blackpeoplediebysuicide2.org. We always want to improve the podcast. And so we're happy that we're this is our, our new home. We think it looks great. Shout out to Digital Empath because they're doing an awesome job. So we are, uh, yeah, we're very excited. So we just ask that y'all bear with us. You know, the one of the things that I've learned from this process is being open because I initially remember when we first started the podcast, Leon would ask questions like, do you want this? Do you want that? I'm just, I don't know, Leon. <laughs> and so one of the things that I learned is that to start something. If you have something that you want to do, just start it. It does not have to be perfect and you don't you don't have to have it all figured out. There are so many things that you will learn along the way. And there are as we've been recording and having guests and doing all of the everything related to the podcast, I've been learning like okay, this is what I like, this is what I don't like, this is what I want to improve. So that is something that this process has also taught me because I can tend to be a bit of a perfectionist. <laughs> Jordan knows she works with me. So, um, so yeah, so we hope that you all enjoy the set. Um, so before we will begin to have our first episode that you will see with this wonderful set will be with the amazing Dr. Rita Walker. She will kick off. So, but for now we have some episodes that were pre-recorded. So I'm just letting y'all know when y'all see this, we putting this out now for y'all so we can address <laughs> the changes right. in the set. Right. But y'all going to get some white background and some grass. And then once the grass is over, then you're going to get this set. <laughs> yes. Um. We, again, as Takiya said, we're so open to feedback. Um, y'all, I'm going to try to talk louder, Lord. I uh, my mom calls me mouse mouth. She she said I talk like me 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 me. Um, so I'm gonna try to do better and project if you couldn't hear me. But yeah, so this is the new set. I hope you like the way it looks. I think it looks beautiful. It's aesthetically pleasing. So yes. So thank you all for bearing with us. Thank you so much for supporting us. We are so grateful. We ask that you continue to support us. Our goal for 2024 is to grow our YouTube channel. Um, it's YouTube is a is a beast, but we are determined to make sure that our channel continues to grow so that we can get this content out and help change the world. So thank you so much for supporting us, you all.
The information presented in this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for clinical mental health treatment. If you or someone you know is experiencing a mental health crisis, please dial 988 or head to your nearest emergency room. Welcome to the Black People Die by Suicide 2 podcast, where we discuss all things mental health with an emphasis on suicide in the Black community. I'm your co-host, Jordan. And I'm your co-host, Takia. <laughs> welcome to another episode. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome to our podcast. If you are coming back, thank you so much for checking us out again. Um, so at the start of all of our episodes, we like to do a check in really tap into our feelings and get in touch with what's going on with us um so takia how are you feeling checking in well i feel like my mood has shifted good good yes because we you know talked to a wonderful black man (laughs) (laughs) and um he really did help to um shift my mood so i'm doing um i feel like my mood has definitely shifted um and still um acknowledging you know, some of the the stressors, but even with that, still taking a moment to try to be present and be mm-hmm. present here while we're shooting the show versus thinking about what's going on outside. Right. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, I feel the same. I still feel anxiety, but I feel hopeful with that as well. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you know, it was great to get a different perspective on on mental health and it really gave me hope for like the future of suicide prevention just as a topic and as an initiative across the country mm-hmm. so I'm feeling pretty good today I, you know what I, I'll take that I, I feel optimistic so today we are joined by Jasmine Pierre she is the founder of the safe space app and we just want to check in with Jasmine <laughs> let us know how you're doing how are you feeling today I'm feeling, I don't, have, I don't have everybody ask me that question every day. So sometimes it takes me a minute to think about how, how am I really feeling? Um, I'm alive. Is that fine to say? <laughs> I'm here. Yes, absolutely. Alive. Like that's something to mm-hmm. be, when we talk about, I think that kind of speaks to being mindful and grateful. Right. Yep. You know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, Absolutely. I'm I'm excited. So me and Jasmine got a little little history because I met Jasmine pre Black People Die by Suicide too, which was Fireflies Unite. So I I know Jasmine. We got a chance to meet in person. I can't remember what year this was, but we both sm- spoke. I said smoked. Me and Jasmine did not smoke together. <laughs> we, <laughs> we spoke at the oh gosh, what it was a conference by. No More Martyrs, but I don't think that's the name anymore. I think they're the Black Mental mm-hmm. Women's like Institute, I think is the new change, is the change. But nonetheless, we spoke at this conference um, together, and that's how I got a chance to meet Jasmine. So, Yes, we are so excited to have you today. So for today's topic, we are talking about um, technology, you guys, like, especially with social media, the pandemic we're more connected than ever before and there's a lot of like mental health apps um safe what is it uh better help mm-hmm. or um headspace talk or talk, talk space or calm mm-hmm. yes yeah, so there's a lot of you know mental health help out there but 
here we have an app that's made for us by us. Hey, now, yes, you know, we love, love that. that. Yes. <laughs> so part of the thing, one of the things that we like to do on the podcast is, you know, expose people to different um, resources that are available to you. And so, Jasmine, if you could tell us a little bit about the Safe Place app um, and also tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana, and I heard that y'all came for Essence Fest. So we I hope that she <laughs> hope that she had a really, really good time. And I know it's really hot here, so I hope you stayed hydrated as well. <laughs> and um, so I've been going through mental health issues probably my whole life, but I just didn't understand it or really know about it. I mean, the black community as a whole, we're really not educated about mental health issues. And so around the time I was about 25 years old, after a really bad suicide attempt, I became a mental health advocate. And I just, um, I really saw the need to talk more about it in our community more than just talking about it in general, because I feel like a lot of people talk about mental health in general now, even though it's still taboo but it's even more taboo in our community. So I said to myself, like, what is something I can do that can help us, but that's, that's also like an easy way to access the help. And I'm like, um, we're on our phones all the time, right? So I thought like an app would be a really good option. So I decided to create the app. I'm sorry, that, that was a really long explanation. <laughs> so no. can you tell us a little bit about your own mental health journey? So I was diagnosed with um, the major depressive disorder at age 20. And I can just remember the first time, well, I got diagnosed in a, a mental institution, which was like crazy to me because I had no idea what the system was like. And like, once you first go in for the first time, you're like, what the hell is this? It feels like jail because that's exactly what it felt like to me. And when I have the doctor tell me that I was depressed, I'm just like, black people, well, in my head, I'm thinking black people don't go through this. Like, black people don't get depressed. We go to church, we pray, you know, that's what we've been told pretty much our whole life. So, like, I was hearing what he was saying, but it was just kind of going in one ear and out the other. So, unfortunately, because of that taboo in our community, I didn't really take my diagnosis very serious until. I was about 20, 27, maybe 28 years old. And um, when I started advocating, I feel like it was hard at first because like it's, I mean, you don't see many people that look like us mm. talk about mental health in our community. So I was worried if I was just gonna be like stigmatized, if people were going to like, like talk bad about me because you know it's like a really hush thing in our community and we just really just don't like to discuss it at all so i was really afraid about that but i just felt like um if i was ever going to get better i needed to start being able to express my feelings more so like even though I was doing advocating because I wanted to help other people, I feel like it was helping myself too because I could finally say out loud, like, hey, I'm going through this and it's okay to go through this. And it's been quite a journey because 
I can't remember Takia, but like when we met each other, well, I mean, when we met each other, I had my app, but I remember when you had your, um, was it Fireflies? What was it called at first? Mm -hmm. It's been some years now. Right. I can't remember. Yeah, I, I, I started off with a page called A Flight Worth Finishing because I wrote a book about my experiences with depression and stuff. But I just really, like I said earlier, I saw a real big need in our community to talk about it more, like exclusively about how black people go through mental health disorders. So I just, I switched more to advocating in that direction. And honestly, that helped me even more with learning about my own mental health because a lot of people don't know how much racism really exists in psychology and how much those things impact how black people think about mental health issues today. So um, I'm sorry if that was another long explanation. No. <laughs> but No, I'm so glad you brought that up. When you talk about um, racism in psychology, you talk about even providers being culturally um, aware. And I try not to use competent because I don't think anybody can be competent on someone else's culture. Maybe that's just me. But I want to say culturally aware because when we talk about like diagnosis and things like that, like I remember there was this psychiatrist who was working and she's, um, there was a patient who was there and they had asked them like, oh, um, how how long has it been since you smoked uh, marijuana? And the patient was like, I didn't smoke marijuana in a minute. Now, the black psychiatrist knew what a minute meant. You know, for black people, a minute is not an actual minute. <laughs> right. A minute. Right, that's a, that's a wild for us. Right. <laughs> right. A minute could be three months. It could also be last week. You got you to gotta be a part of the culture to know what we're talking about. But that... Um, doctor was like i think this patient has lost con a concept of time and if if it wasn't for that black psychiatrist being there that person people like that they get misdiagnosed they then they end up get put on medication because they got uh for the wrong diagnosis like things like that so when you talk about like uh racism and then also like just how black people experiences mental health diagnosis um differently even like the new study that came out that talks about how black women um depression symptoms are different from uh, you know from other women so I don't think that your um, answer was long or it was off I think actually it's something that uh, needs to be talked about yeah can you tell us if um, it doesn't sound like it but can you tell us if mental health was ever talked about like growing up with your family um, you know did you all ever have conversations about or I guess I guess what messages did you receive about mental health growing up? That is a very good question. So the only time I can remember like really having a conversation about mental health in my family is with my mom because um, my uncle was in the Vietnam War. So he came back with really severe PTSD and he never, he never recovered. Like he was never the same again. And um, as a child, I didn't know that it I just knew that something was different about my uncle. Like the way mm -hmm. my mother explained it was, she's like, well, he went over to the war and she said he saw some really horrible stuff. He saw people die and stuff. And she's like, when he came back, um, he would have these really bad nightmares. And sometimes he just 
wouldn't be like his old self. Like that's kind of how she described it to me. So I didn't really know it was PTSD until I got older. And honestly, I um, go through PTSD also myself, but we don't talk about PTSD in black folks a lot unless it revolves around um, being in the military. Mm-hmm. But my PTSD comes from being sexually abused by family members. So I wish that we probably could have talked more about my uncle's diagnosis because even though it's a different, he had PTSD in a different way, um, people don't realize like pre-existing conditions in our families, it, it can be passed on because also my mom and my um, my grandmother, her mom, they both also went through depression as well. And when you don't, when you really don't talk about these issues in our families, it just kind of keeps getting worse generation after generation, which is exactly what happened for me because um, I was molested by my brother and my stepsister when I was, it started off when I was really, really young. So, um, I didn't really have any words to like to really describe to my to my parents at the time what was really going on with me because I was like really really young and I I feel like now at age thirty four I can say to myself there's some things I blacked out when I was younger just because it was so traumatic and I just didn't want to um, remember what was going on so I didn't really. Um, talk much about it at first. I can remember the first time I, I, the first and only time I brought it up in my childhood was when um, my brother was going to see a counselor because he had his own issues going on himself and um, he would see a counselor regularly. And I told, I told my mom and the counselor, like I said it in front of everybody, I said, he's been touching me inappropriately and I don't like it. Um, but the counselor didn't report it. So I was about maybe seven or eight years old and you know, the counselor didn't report it and my mom never bought it up. She never bought it up again after the counseling session. So even at a young age, I kind of felt like nobody really cared. So I never really said anything about it again until I was adult. Like um, my dad never knew, my dad died from lung cancer um, when I turned 30 and that's when we were really close and it was a very traumatic experience and that's when I kind of revealed to everybody what had happened and that was the reason why I really go through severe um, mental health trauma is because I was molested. I'm so sorry to hear about your dad. Um, I, I feel like when we talked the last time we talked, I felt like you were caring for him, but I didn't. Yeah, know you're him. right. Yeah, because I, I remember he was uh, starting like to get sick or things were kind of taking a turn. But I'm so sorry to hear about your dad. I didn't know that he passed. Thanks. Yeah. Um, yeah. When, when we were at the conference, I was still hoping to take care of him. And oh, gosh, he had stage three lung cancer. And it's just really hard to see a parent that you love so much um, one day just be so um, independent and doing everything for themselves. And then to the point where they're so sick from chemotherapy and radiation that it's like now 
you're being a parent to the child. I mean, you're being a parent to your parent in a way because he just, he wasn't able to really take care of himself um, like he used to. And I remember I, I heard um, earlier you were talking about, um, I can't remember which one of you were saying that um, somebody in your family died and uh, your brother found him. Yes, that oh, was me. Jordan. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I didn't have the exact same experience, but my dad, um, he had a stroke at the very end of um, at, at his life. And I found him, I found him in that state and it was like very scary if you've never seen somebody, you know, in that state. And um, about a few weeks later, he, he died. So I know it's not the same, but I can still remember seeing him like that. And he didn't have any control over his body anymore. And, um, you know, the stroke really messes with the brain. So it's like he wasn't making really um, coherent sentences and stuff. It was just, it was really scary. And I still, I still carry a lot of trauma from, from, from that, from, it's, it's hard being a person with disabilities and also taking care of somebody who is very chronically ill, especially when it's somebody you love. So he died in 2019 and then the pandemic broke out. And it's like, at that point, I was starting to realize, you know, my dad told me before um, he died, you know, if you don't take better care of yourself, because I was stressed out a, a lot about stuff. This was before um, I was really seeing a therapist more and taking my mental health like more seriously he was telling me like you could end up in the hospital bed right next to me from stress he's like stress can kill you so he was telling me do what you can to take care of yourself and i took that very seriously so i had to make some really hard decisions and um cut some family off in my life um before my dad died my brother and my sister were still in my life my whole life like, you know, in the black community, we see family as like, it's tight knit. Like we, we really feel like um, the family has to stick together. And unfortunately, sometimes even when it's a, a family member that is very dysfunctional, like sometimes we still feel like we have to keep those people around. But when my dad died, it just, it traumatized me so much. It made me realize like, why am I still keeping these people in my life if they are stressing me out so much and if they've done these things to me that that are horrible? I feel like, you know, we feel like forgiveness in our community is also a really big thing. But I feel like even if you decide to forgive somebody, that doesn't mean that you have to stick around and let them keep mistreating you. So I decided for myself that I didn't want that anymore because a lot of the things that I dealt with um, growing up with molestation is the reason why I feel so suicidal so much today and, and why I, I go through suicidal thoughts so frequently. Like, um, I don't want to talk so much about my diagnoses, but it's like I, I do have, I have more than two. So I have depression, I have PTSD. Um, and I also got diagnosed this year with something called premenstrual dysphoric disorder. And I um, really wanted to talk about it on the show because it's something that a lot of people don't know about. 
and it is it's linked to mental health so it's not considered a mental health disorder but it is still listed in psychology because of the effects it has on um people who have periods so two weeks before um, my cycle i get well i try to explain to people that pmdd is like um pms on steroids i mean because uh, you know what pms feels like but it's just like to a whole nother level. Um, one of the symptoms of PMDD is suicidal thoughts. And uh, when I found that out, it was not scary to me. It was actually a relief because I've been told my entire life, like you have to be stronger and, you know, because you're suicidal, you pray and God's gonna take care of this. But I'm like, I can't help that I feel this way and, and learning that um, I get suicidal thoughts from this, it, it, it made me feel more validated in my experiences with just having like severe suicidal thoughts. And I found out that PMDD is linked to trauma. So um, somebody who has had like a really traumatic experience like being molested or being severely um, abused in another kind of way can um, develop PMDD. And if you have a pre-existing history with mental health, it can make it even worse. So we don't talk about this much, but we need to talk about it more because black women who have PMDD um, were often misdiagnosed with bipolar disorder. And the reason that happens is um, a lot of anger can come with PMDD because of the hormone changes every month and just everything your body is going through. So because black women, you know, they have this stereotype that black women are always angry. A lot of black women just get misdiagnosed like, oh, she's angry. Well, she's bipolar. Let's put her on this kind of medication. And it really doesn't get diagnosed um, correctly, which is um, really horrible because a lot of women who have PMDD, um, they, they feel like there is nobody who relates to them. And a lot of them end up um, trying to end their lives because there's not enough um, information, even in the medical field about it. They either um, suggest that you've been on birth control or um, they try to put you on some type of antidepressant or something, which that's not bad for everybody, but certain medications don't always work for certain people. So it can get really tricky and, they just don't have enough information about it. So that's been really hard for me to navigate. Um, but I'm happy that I'm starting to get a better grasp of like how to take better care of myself because I didn't know anything of any of these diagnoses growing up. Like we just didn't have the education for it. But now that I know what I'm going through, it's just, um, I have better ways to put in place how to take care of myself if I do feel suicidal, if I do need to reach out to somebody because back then I really didn't have anybody to really talk to. Um, suicide is taboo in our community, like if you're black or not. So it's like, and they criminalize you so badly if you are suicidal, which I hope we'll you know, definitely talk about more during the podcast. but. I'm sorry if I'm rambling again. I just have so much no. to say about this topic. <laughs> no, it's okay. No, I'm actually, let's go ahead and talk about it. I, I do know I 
been following Jasmine for years on social media and you do talk, um, do a great job at, y'all should just follow Jasmine. She be going in on social media, <laughs> but it's, it's passion, not in a bad way. Like it, it needs to be discussed. Um, so even talking about like why you created on the safe place app, mm -hmm. um, like there's an option in terms of I think you talked about like don't have the police to to show up um, just kind of really speaking to that because we people who do experience mental health challenges especially black people you know we already know the trauma that we face in terms of police brutality right. and then you talk about having a mental health condition and then police officers not being trained in crisis intervention or mental health first aid or having any knowledge and how that trauma on top of whatever mm -hmm. we're experiencing with the mental with our mental health how that actually you know adds makes things worse can, can you kind of speak about that but also you know why you decided to make that addition to the app being handcuffed for one like um that was one of the most humiliating experiences of my life especially since I don't have a criminal record at all. I've never like I'm like even if somebody does have a criminal record and they're trying to get healthcare support, like why it's just I just don't understand how somebody can handcuff me just because I'm sick. I've never like because I've been to the ER for other things, the the flu, if if something's wrong with me, like I've I've been treated very differently if I go in for something else or if I'm going in for a suicide attempt. Like even the doctors and the staff will treat you so differently if you are going through a suicide attempt. And um, a couple of years ago, there was a hurricane in New Orleans, um, Hurricane Ida, and I had to evacuate the city. And I was really stressed out. So I had to stop in um, a place called um, Alexandria, Louisiana. And I stopped um, briefly at a shelter. Um, because um, I was trying to evacuate, so it was just, it was one of the stops on the way to get to um, Texas. I was trying to go to Texas, and they happened to have um, medical staff there, and I was, I thought I was just, you know, trying to get help. I told them about my mental health history, and I'm like, I'm not feeling suicidal right now, because you, you know, you have to be careful what you say, because they will try to lock you up. I, I literally said, I am not suicidal right now, but I do go through mental health issues. And if I don't get help, I might get to that point. So I'm like, can you please, I, I just need help right now. So at first I thought they were just being really helpful. We sat outside, we talked, I felt safe at first. Um, I even fell asleep around them, uh, but I woke up to a cop over me after I told them that I was not suicidal. And that's something that I can't forget is like I just woke up and like there's a cop talking to me. So I'm confused at first. I'm like, why is he here? And I'm like, oh my gosh, they, I understood what was going on when I woke up. I'm like, they called the police on me. So I tried to explain to the officer really nicely, like, what was going on? I'm like, hey, sir, I'm not suicidal. Like, hey, I'm a mental health advocate. I do a lot of work in the system. I know I have rights. I'm like, I did not tell them that I'm suicidal, so I don't feel like going anywhere with you. I'm like, I just need to evacuate and get out of here, and I'm going to feel better. And he's like, um, no, you have no choice. You have to come with me. So I didn't get, like, really angry with the cop, but I stood up, and I was like, sir, I'm not going anywhere with you. 
I don't need your services. And then I guess he saw that as aggressive and he handcuffed me really aggressively and put me in the squad car. So um, I'm in a city I don't really know. I'm not familiar with. It's in the middle of the night and I'm with this white cop and I don't know. I'm, I'm sorry. I was about to say a bad word. I don't know where the heck he's going to take me. So um, it was a very traumatic experience. Um, they ended up taking me to some site board there in Alexandria and um, Thankfully, the medical staff had more sense. Like, I talked to the doctor, and I told him what was going on. I'm like, hey, I even told them that I'm not suicidal, but they handcuffed me anyway. And I was, like, really upset and stuff, but he, he heard me out, and he, um, once he heard my story, he was even kind of upset. He was like, they should have not brought you here. You didn't say you needed their services. Um, they were wrong, so they let me go. And that was, like, that was the first time ever I've had a doctor like listen to me and say she does not need to be admitted because I had been admitted twice before against my will and I, I was telling the doctor, I'm like, hey, if I get admitted, this is not gonna make me feel better. This is gonna make me feel more suicidal. And it is statistically proven that a lot of people when they get out of the mental health facility, mm -hmm. the suicide rates go up because mm -hmm. these places don't feel like healthcare, they feel like jail. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad that you brought that up because the very first time that I was hospitalized, um, I was taken to the a mental health hospital in Atlanta in a squad car. Um, thankfully, they didn't handcuff me, but I, I'm so sorry that you had that experience. Um, I just have so many thoughts listening to you speak because I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. I know. I, it's okay. It's okay to cry. I, I do literally. It's okay. I, I feel like as you were talking, like I was just getting like so angry. Um, You know, just to think that, you know, people like us who are treated so poorly because we live with a sickness that is in our brain that we can't always necessarily control. And you spoke of it so well when you, when you said, if I was in there for the flu or if I had an asthma attack, I would be completed treatly. We would be completed, treated completely differently. And it just is so many emotions that come up as you're speaking. It's like, I'm pissed off to Right, because it's it's almost like so you're punishing me for something I can't control, especially because I remember working. Exactly. I remember working at a peer um, center and one of the peers was like. I'm a uh, suicidal and she was like, but she doesn't want to wait for the paramedics to come. She wants to go with the police officers. And they were like, oh, it's protocol. We have to uh, handcuff you. And I was like, but she's not even being like, I I get it. They say, oh, it's a safety thing or whatever. I can see if the person's being combative, they have a gun, they're swinging. But she was calm. She was just saying, I'm not, you know, I just don't feel safe right now. Um, and they were like, we have to handcuff you. And I just was like, but she's not even doing anything. It's always for safety. So, but if somebody was, they had a heart attack, you wouldn't, you know, do that. So, yeah, it just, 
there's so many emotions and thoughts just kind of going through my mind as I was listening to you share. You wanted to speak to something? Yeah, you know, I was going to say um, I feel tearful just listening to you speak because there's a lot of parallels in our stories anyway as far as, you know, uh, when I was a child experiencing like inappropriate touching and um, I also have depression and PTSD because of those things. And you also lost your dad to cancer. I lost my cancer. father to lung cancer. So um, y'all have a lot. Wow. Yeah. Listening to you speak just, it's bringing up a lot of things, um, a lot of things for me. And I'm, and I'm glad that you're here sharing your story. Um, it's, I got like a chill through me because it's literally like listening to myself speak. And I'm sorry for the experiences that you have, that you've gone through. You're going to make me cry. It's okay. It's okay. Well, no, it's not okay that it's happening, but um, I'm glad glad that I'm here talking to both of you because I feel like stuff like this is important, like to have these kind of conversations because it's just like so stigmatized and like people really don't know what the system is like once you go in. So... For the longest time, I didn't understand why black people didn't want to get resources, like why we didn't want mental health resources. But it's because of systemic racism. It's not our fault. There's so many things about this system that needs to change. And like I said, once I was put in handcuffs, I was just. <sighs> Takia, you, you've met me before. I, I'm, I'm pretty much calm in person. I'm, I'm a friendly person. But once that cop put um, those cuffs on me, I started cussing that man out. I'm, I'm sorry. I know I probably shouldn't have done that because things bad things happen to people who look like us. But I felt like my voice was the only thing I had left. I'm like, you already put the handcuffs on me. What else do I have to say? Because I was just, I was so... I had never been ang- that angry in my entire life because I'm like, I was even more mad at the medical staff than I was at the police officer. Cause I'm like, y'all didn't even listen to me. I advocated for myself. I felt like I'm doing the right thing. I feel bad and I'm, I'm going to see a doctor because I feel bad. So I'm talking to somebody and y'all betray me. You, 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 you make me leave. I'm in handcuffs and like, there was a lot of people watching online as this happened so they don't they don't know what was going on they could have thought i was some kind of criminal so i'm just like i know that officer's feelings was really hurt that's all i'm gonna say because i gave him a piece of my mind and when i walked into the facility i'm pretty sure like the staff thought i was crazy but once i and i hate saying that word but once i talked to them and i calmed down a little bit they were like oh we understand why you're so upset because what they did was completely wrong and completely uncalled for. I was sick for days after that experience. Like, I was throwing up. I, I already had PTSD, so it's like that made my PTSD like even worse. I was so depressed. I'm just like, the, the things that they offer in this system make you feel even more suicidal. And I'm, I'm like, what what is this stuff? So... I said something needed to be done. Like, I actually want to do more than what I'm doing with the Safe Place app, but I'm like, if all I can do right now is a virtual um, chat group where Black folks can come and at least talk about their suicidal thoughts and not have to worry about somebody calling law enforcement on them, that then that's what I'm going to do. Because 
I know I never want to feel that experience again. And it makes me so angry to know that there's so many more people that look like me that's going through this and some of them get killed because of it. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry I'm getting emotional, but it just makes me, it makes me so angry what they do to us in this system. And when you talk about like just kind of going in the hospital, I, you know, when I had my experience, the police officer, when he showed up uh, to my house, because I had a, a friend who I, at the time I didn't know, but after the process, I, I, and she told me like, yeah, I was the one who called because she wasn't sure what to do. She just saw the text message said it would be better if I was dead, but she did the right thing in the sense of, because I already had taken all these substances and I was just like, oh, I'm just going to go in my sleep. But when I'm grateful that when the police officer came, he said, you know, you're a threat to yourself. You've told me what you've done and you're like not even really present because I was already on a whole bunch of stuff. And he said, you know, I do remember him saying, you know, I can handcuff you, but I'll also give you the option to call the paramedics. I'm so grateful that he gave me the option because even though I was going to the hospital, regardless, the fact that I had, you know, was given a voice to say like, you know what, I'm going to let you be in control. I do care about your safety, um, but I want you to figure out what's the best option for you. And because of stories like how you talk about, like they put you in a squad car, they didn't handcuff you, but still just going in a squad car could be traumatic as well. Cause it makes you feel like you did something wrong. Yeah. And then like you being handcuffed is like, we all have these different experiences in terms of interaction with law enforcement. And I'm not saying that sometimes people don't need to be handcuffed, but I'm saying there are plenty of times when we do not need to be. And I'm grateful for, I wish I could remember who the officer was, but even how he spoke to me, I just felt like a human, you know, I didn't feel, and he was like, yeah, I know. I'm sorry. Like, this is just the options that we have, but he was, I could tell, I got the sense that he wasn't so committed to try to get me in handcuffs, if that makes sense. We need more people like that, that are culturally competent in the system, but mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of times that cops don't really need to be in mental health care at all, because I mean, they try to stigmatize mental health as we're like criminals, especially if you are black. But majority of, majority of the time, we're more a danger to ourselves than we are yes. to anybody else. Yes. So I it's like, it, it, exactly. So it, it's like a lot of times we don't even need their services. So for that cop to at least, you know, be aware enough to be like, hey, you probably don't even want to go in the squad car. You don't want to be bothered with me let me give you this other option. Like a lot of them don't do that. A lot of them will just handcuff you or make you go into the squad car. So the fact that I wish more of them were like that because most of them are not. And it's really sad. Mm -hmm. So Jasmine, we know that you are a peer support specialist in um, New Orleans. Um, Jordan and I are peers in Maryland. So can you just kind of talk about your work and you know, why you decided to um, become a peer? Yeah, so um, I'm not actively in the field right now, but I still keep up my um, certification each year because I feel like, first of all, I feel like peer support specialists should get paid more Ooh, um, because yes. we, are, we are very important people in the field. Um, 
we're the people that actually go through mental health disorders and stuff like that. So having somebody that they can talk to and, to, and can relate to is like, it's a huge thing in the field. Like um, when I went to go um, to school to be a peer support specialist, like I was really, really excited about it because I'm like, I didn't even know um, prior to like something like that had even existed and somebody somebody that I know had just like suggested it to me that like, you would probably be like really um, good at this. So um, I decided that I wanted to um, go to school for it. Like it was, I feel like it was, I had a really great teacher. It was a really great environment and that I learned so much from it. So like, even though I'm not actively doing it in the field right now, like, like I said, I always like keep up my CEUs because I'm like, even, I mean, I feel like peer support work, even in um, mental health advocacy is like very important because mm -hmm. we're just peers just trying to get the word out about like how mental health is like important. Like this podcast right now, I feel like this is so needed and it's so unique and like being able to um, talk about our experiences with suicide as a peer. Like I know that this podcast is helping to save so many people's lives. Like, um, I watch y'all's podcast for one. Like, I, I'm not just a guest. I actually watch the podcast because I go through suicidal I go through suicidal thoughts so much and I didn't talk about it for so long. And being able to like just listen to the podcast and hear your experiences and the other guests' experiences, I'm like, oh my gosh, they look like me. I just feel like that's even a huge part of peer support, just being able to to make this kind of stuff normalize. Like mm -hmm. it's so tab it's so taboo in our community. And peer support is just so important and just like not just being not just being there for the patient, but also just informing and just giving a listening ear. So mm -hmm. um, I'm glad that both of you are peer support specialists too. Like can you tell me more about like the work that you do out there like what is it like out there yeah so it's very interesting because i'm not like working for um an agency anymore but the experience that i have had in peer support i've worked um with a nonprofit organization that um all of the peers that i worked with they all had disability benefits so there, and I'm so glad this kind of brings back to what you were talking about too. Like you were like having a disability. I'm like, okay, I gotta look in the camera and say a mental health uh, for a lot of us, mental health, our mental health diagnosis is a disability. Just as yeah. if someone was to have a physical disability, like it impedes us from getting out of bed, taking care of our hygiene, cooking, doing everyday responsibilities. And a lot of times it is minimized if someone's saying they're experiencing uh, depression or for you PTSD or bipolar disorder, whatever that diagnosis might be, I think it's important that people realize that for a lot of us, we cannot function. You know, so I had moments of not being able to go to work at one point and applying for disability. So I was able to connect with a lot of those peers because they had a mental health diagnosis and they were getting a disability or SSI or SSDI check. And my goal was really trying to um, be um, and I don't even, I guess an example is a word or a role model. I'm, I'm trying to be careful with my word choice, but essentially providing hope that like 
you can have a mental health diagnosis and you can also still be um, a contributing member to society. That doesn't mean that for some people, for some of them, the ultimate goal was to try to get them to see if they could um, survive off of their benefits. And there were some peers who was just like, yeah, I don't want to be in, on benefits anymore. I could, um, I really want to try to actually be able to work. And for some people, it was just like, you know what? No, I only could work part time. But the big thing was trying to get them to like believe in themselves to realize that you're more than your disability or your diagnosis, that you still can live out your dreams. Because a lot of times when people have a mental health diagnosis, they're like, oh, this, just, this is just my life. So a lot of the work that I did at that particular organization was really trying to encourage people to have them to realize, like, you can have um, a productive and a meaningful life, too. You're not just a wash away, if that makes sense. And then when I worked for another mental health organization, it was actually a peer-ran center. So I did a lot in terms of helping them to develop uh, wellness plans and recovery plans, um, advocating for them um, in terms of like being a part of the actual treatment team, so being a voice for them. So I was able to speak to therapists and um, or social workers or psychiatrists. And it was actually an environment that allowed me to be a, a voice for peers. It wasn't just like, oh, this is just this person. Like in the environment that I worked in, they were very respectful and they always wanted to know um, what my thoughts were and how we could actually help um, the patient. So I've, I've had a really good experience, but I know some places don't value peers as much. Yeah, my experience working as a peer, um, I'm not actively doing that right now either, um, but mine was actually on the substance use side. I am not a person with a history of substance use at all, with the exception of like casual alcohol consumption on like cruises and stuff, but I worked for an inpatient um, substance treatment center that was faith-based, and, you know, I would help people, you know, make appointments I would run like peer groups about things like anger hope uh recovery planning um you know I would help them with their like activities of daily living their chores things like that um so that was a nine-month program inpatient for men and women at the time now it's just men but I did that as a peer and then I also worked in the emergency room where um, everyone who comes into the hospital in, in Maryland anyway um, people get triaged or part of triage is they'll ask you questions about either alcohol or substance use and depending upon how they answer it will trigger someone like me to go and speak to them um, so we would encourage people to you know get into treatment if they were so interested in doing that or give them like harm reduction tips um, pass along any like community resources like 12-step meetings or celebrate recovery so we did a lot of you know encouraging people to either obtain their sobriety maintain their sobriety or at least engage in like harm reduction practices that can at least keep them a little bit safer if they are still going to choose to use um so that was my experience as a peer which was completely completely different from Takiyah's it was very interesting um I really enjoyed working with people that dealt with addiction because so often they're almost like thrown away. Mm -hmm. That's just an addict. Oh, that's just a crackhead. That's just, you know, that's the type of language that you would hear. 
but that's someone's son that's someone's mom that's someone's brother like someone is depending on that person it's someone's loved one and when you get to know them and work with them for a while you learn they're just like you they have hopes and dreams they want to go back to school they want to pursue like a cdl and they have plans they're just dealing with addiction and it's really hard to overcome but i've seen people do it time and time and time again so it was really inspiring and i miss doing it it's very hard to be a peer on the addiction side because you will see people pass away and i have to say um all the people that i know and that i worked with and had conversations with and you know i knew about their families and their kids and now they're gone from overdoses I still think about them all the time they really left like a powerful impact on my life personally and like their memory will always live on for me so that was my experience as a peer yeah and we all agree that yes peers do need to be paid more we were just talking Uh, about this yesterday we were talking about it yesterday we said yeah they do in some states depending on where you are um I, I did see Virginia depending on if you worked like at the like the agency or like the fed level they had like a nice salary um but peer support work is so valuable because i often think about what if you know i was a person before like i was into therapy and doing all this type of work if i would have had a peer to be like you know um to encourage me to get into treatment like i remember when i was leading a support group and one of the peers said to me she's like oh my gosh she's like you said you, you know, you were, you know, are a Christian, that you were involved in the church at one point um, because of how the church handled, you know, the things that people did out of ignorance, not because they didn't love me or care about me. Um, she attempted suicide and I was just kind of sharing this thing as I was facilitating the group. And she said, oh, my gosh, she said, I feel seen. I feel heard. I feel validated. She's like, how did you get to the other side? And it speaks to the power of peers because a therapist or, you know, people, uh, a doctor, like even if they have any mental health challenges or substance use or they're in recovery, like they can't disclose that because of ethical reasons. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're trained to use our lived experience to provide hope to show that recovery, you know, is possible. I often think about like how so many of us could be like saved or encouraged to actually seek treatment if our first interaction like was a peer opposed to a police officer. Yes. You know what? I I really hope that the field of peer recovery will continue to grow and that more people will come in contact with us because I personally feel like if I had a peer in the very beginning, that probably would have saved me from going to the hospital. Yes, that's how I feel. I know. And I still have um, clients that I work with that call me and check in with me and let me know what's going on in their life. Like They're so excited because they're working jobs and somebody got married and they just want to let me know what they're doing and, you know, what's going on for them and that they're still sober. And it just makes me so excited. Like, I really wish I would have had that during mm-hmm. my experience. So, yeah, more people should, you know, become peers. They should definitely should be more valued. I think it's starting to shift a little bit in the hospitals here um, where the doctors are like, oh, wait, like, this is actually really valuable, especially for, you know, substance use disorder. Because we'll go in there and we'll talk with people have a conversation, meet with them where they are, and you'd be surprised how much people will be willing to change their behavior if you treat them like a human. It's not hard, but, you know, you see it all the time. Right, because I think sometimes, um, not all, because, you know, there's there's good 
professionals and there's some who are not so good. Right. <laughs> but when you treat people like human and not a number or be like, oh, they're a frequent flyer, they always come in mm-hmm. here. When you actually get to know people, you're just like, wow, they're just a person that's going through a difficult right. time. And when you talk about substance use, like think of so many of us that are walking around here with trauma, but we're dealing with it in a way that is not healthy, but we just don't use substances. Yeah. Some people eat. Some people are just doing so many other unhealthy coping skills and they could have an addiction, but maybe it's just not a substance, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think really kind of seeing that, like you said, they are people, we are people. And if you actually take the time to actually get to know someone, you would know like, well, okay, they're just trying to sort through this trauma. They're having a hard time trying to figure out, you know, why certain things happen to them or why they're experiencing certain emotions. And when we talk about like suicide, like that's why I was always so skeptical to say anything. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, if I say something, I'm going to go, I'm going to be put, I'm going to get locked up. I'm going to be put away. Um, and because of the history that black people have, or just the mental health system have overall, it prevents us from not getting treatment. And so that's why I feel like us by talking about it, and having these conversations, it really does help to to change the narrative. But then also us advocating and saying, like, it's not okay to handcuff us. It's not okay to um, minimize us to our to our diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Agreed. I don't know if there's. I wish that. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, I wish that. Um they would have more peer support for um, people who have been molested because I feel like if, if I would have had somebody to talk to when I was a lot younger, maybe I would have been more open to like talking about it because I can remember for the longest time, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to talk about it because usually when your parents talk about somebody touching on you, you think about a big, scary, like um, stranger, but these were people in my own home. This was my family. And we don't really talk about that kind of stuff in our family. So it's like, I felt like if I would have just had a peer who had gone through a similar experience than me, like I felt like it probably would have been life changing. And I, I hope to be able to do that like in the future for like other black girls and even women who are still like afraid to talk about their stories because a lot of times we are um a lot of times when we talk about that t- that type of stuff some people in our own families will turn against us unfortunately and i've had that happen at my age like in my 30s like when i decided to tell people what happened in my family like some of them just why are you talking about this and why are you bringing this up and it's just like we need more peer support specialists who talk about sexual abuse because there's just not enough people talking about it. And there's like so much, not just stigma around it, but there's so much shame around it as well, especially when it comes inside of your own house. So just being able to have somebody to talk to and share those experiences with like Jordan, I'm, I'm sorry that we've been through similar stuff, but like just you, sharing your experiences today it made me feel less alone just you sharing that little piece of what you did because i didn't have that growing up i didn't have other people who look like me talk about these kind of experiences so i just kind of wanted to say that too same same 
I was going to mention the same thing later. Like, I'm telling you, listening to you speak, it was like, like I was looking at myself in the mirror. And I'm so glad that you were strong enough to come and share your story. And I, too, feel a lot less alone. And seeing you here and seeing that you're okay and all that we've been through, it it just gives me so much hope. And just inspires me to keep pushing with, you know, Black People Die by Suicide, too, and trying to forward our mission of normalizing the conversation about mental health in our community. Because when we make these connections and we realize we're not dealing with this by ourselves, it's so it's so freeing. It's like a relief. So I'm really, really glad that you were participated today. Yeah. Thank you. I'm glad that you both asked me to come on. Yes. Before Jasmine jets out of here, and it's so interesting, as Jasmine was speaking, I was thinking about you the whole time. I'm like, these stories are so parallel, yes. and Jordan is about to lose her stuff. I knew it was coming. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, But it's so good to be able to just have this opportunity to speak to you. Um, can you let people know how they can find the app? Um, what's next for you? What's next for the app? Any new, any anything that you want to share before you before we part ways? So you can find the Safe Place app on Android and iPhone. And let's see, what else? Oh yeah, um, suicide support equals no cops. That's um, a new feature inside the Safe Place app. And as we discussed earlier, I decided that something more needs to be done about this system when it comes to uh, black folks having more options for suicide support. Um, I don't know if you remember earlier this year, there was a black man in Georgia who um, died in a cell filled with belt, with bed bugs. So, um, yeah, so um, the system just treats us horribly if we need help in some kind of a suicidal crisis. So. I just felt like creating this feature was important because I, I know like, especially with us just having this conversation, like a lot of us do go through suicidal thoughts, but we're very afraid to speak up because one is taboo, but also we might get killed because of law enforcement. So we just really need more resources that don't involve law enforcement and I'm hoping to build more things um, in the Safe Place app that um, revolve around just suicidal care without having the police just show up at your door because most times it, yeah, most times it makes it worse, but we also, as black people have the added layer of fear of just either not making it back home or just being roughed up by the police because they feel like that we're more aggressive than other people. So I just, I've, I've um, realized that um, people have been using the feature for the last few months so far, and we don't have many people talking yet, but we do have people talking. So I realized like, okay, like this is something that actually is needed. And I hope that uh, more people feel safe using the option. Um, the Safe Place app is password protected. so. Um, you don't even have to use your real name when you're in there chatting with people. Like I, I wanted to make sure it was also safe in that way if somebody didn't want to, you know, use their real name. So um, I just want to make sure that they feel protected and that 
you're able to talk about your suicidal thoughts in a way that just won't make you feel I just feel like they make us feel like we're criminals a lot of times. And I don't want us to feel like we're criminals just for feeling suicidal. Mm -hmm. So I know that was another long explanation, but I, I feel like that's one of the most important features in the, the app right now is, is that because I'm just tired of seeing our people either being locked up in the system because they have mental health disorders or being killed because these cops don't know how to handle a suicidal crisis or another kind of mental health crisis without pulling out a gun or using all this force on somebody. So, yeah, I'm just hoping that the Safe Place app can be revolutionary in that way that we can help to pave a way um, that maybe um, with years to come that the system starts to see like, hey, this is a better option for us not to always use the police because I feel like um, from personal experience, when I need to talk to somebody about um, suicidal thoughts, if I do not have the police involved, if I'm not um, locked up in a mental health facility, I feel um, more heard and I'm less likely to actually attempt um, actually going through with the suicide. So I know that this can help a, a whole lot of people. Absolutely, Jasmine, it's truly been a joy and a pleasure to just speak with you and I'm just like sending you all of the virtual hugs, yes. the positive vibes um, and energy just your way. And I really look forward to seeing like what's next for the app, what's next for you. Thank you for your contribution to the field um, for black people and just really helping us to know that we're not alone, but then also trying to change the narrative um, because the work that you're doing is so, is so important. So thank you. Black People Die by Suicide 2 was created to normalize the conversation about suicide within the black community and to dismantle the myth that suicide is a white people thing. For so long, black people were often told that because we overcame slavery, because we overcame Jim Crow, that mental health doesn't really impact us. But the studies show that that's not true. Black children currently have the highest rate of suicide compared to any other race. And so we're asking that you support us on Given Tuesday, which is Tuesday, November 28th, and donate any amount. No amount is too small. A dollar, two dollars, whatever it is that you have, because it will help us to fulfill our mission of providing hope, providing resources, um, educational trainings, programs, our support groups to help save lives. And ultimately, our goal or our vision, I should say, is a world without suicide. For our spotlight segment, we always like to shed light on someone who has passed away from suicide. And for this episode, we are going to highlight Phyllis Hyman. She was an American singer and songwriter. Um, she died by suicide on June 30th of 1995. Um, and we just want to keep her in our thoughts, in our memories, and, you know, honor her life. Yeah, I the spotlight is one of those things that makes me happy and sad. 
It makes me sad because it's like, dang, we lost someone, but it makes me happy because it speaks to the relevance and the importance of talking about suicide in our in our community. And I remember like when I was <laughs> interviewed on <laughs> Good Morning Washington and they asked me like, why do you think that, you know, people think it's just a white people thing? And I didn't think about this answer until after the fact. I said, I, I think a lot of it is historical mm -hmm. was kind of my answer, but I didn't go into the specifics. And I think a lot of that is because of black people have never, suicide and mental health is already so stigmatized and shamed for us and it's shameful for us. But I think because every time we hear stories about suicide, history has always only showed, told white people's story right. when they've been dying by suicide. Right. And if black people did die, it was like, oh, we better not talk about it. Mm -hmm. Like I even how Jill talked about like for the longest she I think she said she told people her dad had a heart attack. Mm -hmm. She never really said it was suicide. And I also know someone's family who lost a member to suicide and they still it's like maybe two happened two or three years ago and they're still like no we can't talk about it like mm -hmm. don't people know oh my gosh so it's still a lot of shame that comes with it so um i think just that segment just it brings up so many emotions right. for me right so for our resource segment yes we already had the resource because right. we spoke to the resource <laughs> right so it is the safe place app as Jasmine mentioned, you can download it on Android or for um, iPhone. So right. mm -hmm. that is our resource. So y'all make sure y'all support the app, donate to the app, um, because this is a labor of love for her. She's doing this out of, uh, it's a need, but it's also out of the kindness of her heart because she really wants to save people and really be a voice for the black community. So use the app, donate, please support the safe place. And then... Is, is it me next? <laughs> oh, we're doing, uh, we have to do the community change maker, um, but I'll, you, you can do it. So for our community change maker segment, we like to highlight someone who is doing amazing work um, in the field of mental health. And for today, we are highlighting the pride of Nyla LLC. Um, her name is Jasmine Price. She's an LCPC. She's based in D.C. What's an LPPC? Because some people don't know. You know, we know. But what about people who don't know? Licensed. Professional. Professional. Counselor. Counselor. Yes. So for therapists, y'all, for ther therapists watching, y'all know. But there are different types of uh, credentials for therapists. Right. So they have the marriage, family, uh, therapist. Mm -hmm. You know, we have, which I feel like we have to do an episode on because people are like, what's the difference between the psychologist or a social right. worker? or So there are different credential uh, credentials that go into uh, different mental health professionals. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of them provide therapy. Some of them may not. Um, but that's just, we just wanted to make sure because they'd be like, LPC, what? Right. So, yes, Sorry. licensed professional counselor. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so um, Pride of Nyla is based in D.C., and the practice provides therapy, they have doula services, professional trainings, workshops, and they do like private practice consulting. So you can check them out at www.prideofnyla.com. That's N-Y-L-A. Check them out on Instagram at Pride of Nyla. Yes. And I love following um, Jasmine's content. Like, I just, we follow each other on TikTok. Um, I'm really working on getting my TikTok more active, y'all. It's hard to keep up with all these platforms. But um, I follow her on TikTok, but we also follow each other um, on Instagram, um, on my personal page. And I think our podcast follow her, follows her as well. But 
she she posts great content so i would encourage y'all to definitely check her check her out and it was very interesting because i was messing with her on instagram yesterday she had posted something that pretty much said like just because you surrender doesn't mean that um things will go your way and i commented and i told her <laughs> i don't like your sermon this morning <laughs> Yeah, that was, that was a word. So yeah, definitely check out uh, Pride of Nala um, and um, follow Jasmine, who is the I believe she's the owner and the creator. Mm -hmm. So definitely check her out and self care. Um, Jordan, I'm gonna check in with you, girl. What what you doing for self care, or what are you planning on doing, or how is self care going or not going? I'm not gonna lie, my self care is probably gonna be some ice cream. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's summertime. I need something sweet. I think I'm going to treat myself. To what you want, Talenti? Girl. Because I know you love Talenti. I saw Talenti have mango. Um, yes. Uh, it's it's non-dairy. Mm -hmm. And I was very happy because I've been wanting some mango. Mm -hmm. It's delicious. I've had it. Girl, you're going to love it. Y'all understand, years ago, I think it was during the pandemic. Yeah, she was on one with Talenti. The way I used to go in Target and buy, like, ten of them at the same time. Y'all. And go home and eat them. Girl. I'm surprised she hasn't turned into a Talenti. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they discontinued my beloved key lime pie, though, so I've kind of slowed down a little bit. But I think it's time for some ice cream. I've been avoiding it this summer because I'm trying to eat less dairy because I have some physical health um, issues like autoimmune problems. And I feel like when I eat dairy, it kind of makes it worse. But... I'm gonna I'm gonna risk it. Gonna <laughs> risk ice cream. It. <laughs> you, you don't have the, there aren't any there are tons of non dairy ones. Have you ever That's tried true. any ones that? Yes. Because I don't know what kind of ice cream you like, but I have had butter pecan, which is my favorite. They said that's how you could tell if you grew up around old people. Oh, yes. Because I love me a good... Butter pecan, black walnut. Right, or mm -hmm. some people say butter pecan, whatever. I've had I've had cookies and cream. I've had a lot of that were made with, like, um, almond milk, oat milk, or um, cashew milk, or um, coconut milk. I'm not huge on coconut milk ice cream. But they do have some non-dairy ones that you might want to try to see if you like it. And then if it don't work out, then you could try to risk it all. We're going to half risk. We're going to put, like, a toe in. <laughs> We're going to get some non-dairy. That's what I'm going to do. What you going to do for self-care? What am I going to do for self-care? Um, You know what? I, I'm really struggling with that. I think... <sighs> I think I mentioned this before. I did mention this before in the previous episode. Um, I'm still trying to get through that darn Viola Davis book. Oh, yeah. And I'm struggling. I started reading that thing in December, and it is a great book. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of I've been having a hard time quieting my mind lately. Mm -hmm. And when I and I actually did pick it back up, and I'll get distracted. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't know if I want to put the pressure on myself because I keep saying I'm going to finish it at the end of the month. Maybe I'll set the goal to finish it by the end of the year. Maybe that's more <laughs> realistic. Mm -hmm. um, it is not even that I don't have the time to read. It's I'm in a space in my life. I'm having I'm learning to how to manage my time differently. Mm -hmm. It's not that I, because I'm always pretty good about that. But now when you're talking about us just not being a podcast anymore and you add the nonprofit component with working on writing on grants or um, submitting proposals to speak at conferences. And like, there's so much more that goes into black people die by suicide too. Now that I'm learning how to adjust. And I found that before I was like, Oh, I was actually getting back into the reading thing. And then when we had the event coming up and like all this stuff. So 
I'm really trying to um, find a sense of balance. And I look forward to um, us growing as an organization where we have resources to uh, hire and outsource um, certain things because it's, you know, it's a lot. So for me, kind of with self-care is trying to get like adjusted to mm-hmm. things, if that makes sense, because like I'm still working out. Um, I, I do pretty well. I'm a sad, eat a well-balanced diet. I do not believe in deprivation. I don't think you should be like, you can't eat this, you can't eat that. I don't, that's not really my philosophy because I think that just makes things worse. Um, even though I do choose a plant-based lifestyle, but I still do try to enjoy, like, you know, I love and pizza. If you're mm-hmm. in the, well, I, I, I don't know, depending on where you are in Maryland, um, and pizza is like my favorite cause they have uh vegan cheese. So like, that's something that I have been doing, probably indulging in a little too much the past week, but <laughs> it's okay. Um, so yeah, I just been trying to find different things to kind of, um, manage stress. Mm-hmm. So I'm a work in progress. Self-care is always a work in progress, you guys. <laughs> Girl. So for our moment of inspiration, kind of hitting on some themes that we talked about with Jasmine, we are encouraging people to find community in this season, um, whether that be... I was sorry, I want to add. Yes. Especially because, y'all, is Well, we'll <laughs> probably date the episode... I'm going to say as we start to when the seasons start to change and people start going into like fall and the winter seasons like that's when like depression tends to go up for people who may experience like seasonal affective disorder. Um, So I think what Jordan is about to say, it'll really help people as the seasons start to change. Yeah, we're encouraging people to really find community in this upcoming season whether that's, you know, taking a pottery class, an exercise class, uh, cooking, whatever. You can go on meetup. Double Dutch. Double, man, the Double Dutch group. <laughs> <laughs> Meetup.com. Like, if you have an, an interest like knitting or something, you probably can find a group or a book club, anything. Just being able to find connections so that you don't feel so alone. Um, as mentioned earlier in the episode, Again, a lot of the things that Jasmine talked about really resonated with me. It was almost like I could have been telling the story myself. Um, and these these instances, you feel less alone. And I'm telling you, it's so comforting experiencing a mental health disorder to know that it's not just you, especially as black people, because we hold things in and we feel like, dang, it's just us going through this. But that's not true. So we just want to encourage people, find connection, find community in some way. Um, and you know, if you reach out and you try something new, let us know about it. Cause we would love to hear mm-hmm. it. You know what I mean? Comment on, you know, our YouTube channel, our Instagram page, TikTok, whatever. We would love to hear what you're doing to really, you know, gain some support for yourself. Cause again, sometimes it doesn't always come, you know, from our family or from the people that are closest to us. Sometimes we have to go out and create community for ourselves. And we just don't want folks to go into this season experiencing things alone or feeling like they have nowhere to turn or nowhere to talk to send us an email anything you know what I mean um we would love to hear from you guys yeah I I'm so glad that this is the homework because I'm Mm -hmm. huge on community um I think a lot of times 
when we talk about trying to find things in common because a lot of adults talk about, especially I've seen on just social media in general, will say, I have a hard time making friends. And I don't know what that's like because I'm such a social butterfly. <laughs> Jordan, Jordan says she's one of those people. Um, I'm such a social but and I literally just meet people without even trying. It's not really much of an effort that goes into it. But I think it's so important when you find some of those things like and a lot of people in my life know and I I think I may have talked about it in a podcast, but like I'm I'm always raving about my all women's gym that I go mm-hmm. to because like they support me not just like in terms of my physical health, but also like mentally. Like they know what's going on uh, with my mental health. They know that I struggle and they're actually a great support. Some of them have come over to just sit with me. Some have brought food when I was like not eating and not able to really take care of myself because it got that bad. Um, and they wasn't even trying to pressure me like, oh, Takiya, you know, you need to get back to the gym. You need to work. I was like, no, we're the gym is always going to be here when you're ready. Right. Um, and so when you talk about like doing different things, like taking a pottery class or a cooking class, you don't necessarily have to open up right away. But when right. by taking those classes and doing things that you have interest in, you start to there's at least one or two people that you'll actually get a connection with and you'll start to build trust. And before you know it, now you have a new person in your support system. So it's super important that you find people um, outside of your therapist or outside of a family member because like I'm always raving about Jordan like Jordan is my ride or die like I'm I'm so serious and I'm so overprotective I don't want her to have no other friends okay <laughs> I'm the friend <laughs> so but it's it's so important that you have you know people that you know you can confide in and if you don't have that we talk about one of the things in rap is personal responsibility is one of the key concepts. It's our personal responsibility to create our support system. So I hope that y'all got something from this episode. Thank you for tuning in. And we just look forward to seeing y'all on the next episode. Be sure to like, comment, subscribe, share the podcast episode, follow us on um, social media. And thank you so much again for listening. Y'all take care. Till next time. Hello, everyone. My name is Jordan, co-founder and associate director of Black People Die by Suicide 2. It's your girl, Kia. <laughs> <laughs> the better half. <laughs> so, Kia, I am the co-founder and executive director of Black People Die by Suicide 2. So our organization is looking for people to donate their time to serve on committees to help us with our mission to normalize the conversation about suicide in the black community, provide resources to those who need it, and most importantly, inspire hope in the hopeless. Um, So we're looking for people to serve on several different aspects, one of them being like a peer support committee. So if you're someone with lived experience and you work in the field of peer support, We would absolutely love for you to reach out to us for that. You could provide uh, advisement on different things that we're looking to do as peers. We also have a program committee that's going to consider what type of things do we want to offer in the future? Um, What type of programs would we like to extend to individuals that will help benefit their mental health? We also have a finance committee. Of course, that would be, you know, that would assist the treasurer in keeping the finances straight. And then we have our other committees, which is the Development Committee 
And y'all, if you got experience with fundraising, we need you. <laughs> we Gra- need you. Grant writing, all of that stuff, you know, it takes money to run a nonprofit um, and organization. And we need you. If you have experience with grant writing or development, anything that's related with funding for nonprofits, we would love to have you sit on the development committee. We also have the communications committee. Now, look. Takia want all the help, communications, marketing, y'all. I'm telling y'all right now, <laughs> I can use the help. All things communications, it's just Takia, and you know, we 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 need the help. So we would love to have you. So if you have experience in PR, marketing, communications, or if you just want to learn and you're interested in doing that, um, you can also be on our communications committee. We also have a peer support committee, the finance committee, and a program committee. So if you or someone you know um, would be interested in helping us out, that would be fantastic. We're at a very grassroots stage with our organization. So this is a wonderful time to be on board if you want to support our mission. Send us an email to info at blackpeoplediebysuicide2.org. Again, that's info at blackpeoplediebysuicide2.org. We would absolutely love to have you on board. Yes, because then they could say, y'all could say y'all was with us in the trenches. (laughs) Yes. You know? So get on the train now while it's just, you know, right, it's just just getting there. So, but yeah, as Jordan mentioned, (laughs) feel free to email us, info at blackpeoplediebysuicide2.org. We would love to have you on the committee. We have some amazing things that are cooking up and we would love for you to be a part of it. This episode was sponsored by the Mental Health Empowerment Agency, where its mission is to dismantle the mental health stigma and raise awareness of suicide prevention through curated events, individual and group peer support, digital and social media, and educational trainings.